Jennifer, we hand over to you now. We're doing a, you're about to launch a new farming program, isn't that right? We are. Well, so basically, my farming experience is nil. So I thought I'd be the perfect person to try and push for a farming show. However, you cannot do something without the expertise. So I think over the last while, there's been several of us have been talking to Jim Collins about wouldn't it be great to actually do something fe- uh, focusing on farming, trying to actually address what's going on in the area. And given that East Clare is a farming community to actually have representation for farmers and growers to discuss what's going on, what are the challenges. And I think as we've all become aware over the last number of years there's definitely more of a focus now especially this year on farm secure our food security um, and we really wanted to try and come together so I'm fortunate to be joined by the expertise of Tom Hanley Martin McMahon and Paul Bugler and we've had a couple of get-togethers to have a chat and see what we could actually do and um, so yeah so that's kind of where we've started we've had a couple of meetings so far and I'm delighted to have Martin and Tom with us Paul unfortunately is uh, stuck on a soccer pitch teaching nine-year-olds um, in this sun so couldn't join us <laughs> has to be done too <laughs> has to be done too I don't envy him in this weather though <laughs> but I think the other thing as well why even though we haven't put the show yet together it was farm safety week is next week and I think we all are aware of tragedies that have happened on farms and the importance of actually addressing the need for better farm safety and really to try and ensure that there's better supports for farmers to to try and actually prevent tragedies happening in the future. So we just thought, well, farm safety is coming next week. Why not actually just let people know that we're actually planning to put together a farming show and then kind of take it from there. And hopefully we'll all be able to pull it together and offer the listeners of Scarif Bay Community Radio a farming show. Great. So, Tom, the state of farming... Um, it's it's I suppose the the um, the Ukrainian crisis has brought a number of things to a head, it's such as has, food yeah. security, the price of fertilizer, yeah. price of inputs, but also how precarious the actual global food supply is. Yes, it is. Of course, what's been happening, I suppose, over the generations, everything is this industry buzzword, just in time, produces just in time. There's no stockpiles of anything, you know, mm-hmm. and that's. Uh, I think I did a little program a couple of years ago, you know, what if? Yes. And I was thinking, what if there was a major weather event, whether it be snow or otherwise, you know? We could yeah. nearly starve here in East Clare yeah. if food didn't come into us, you see? Yeah. But, and I was thinking then if we should do more to have a micro-economy. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And keep it local because, it, just take milk as an example now. And when I was in Kildare, I used to look after the Glanbia plant in Ballytore, which is mm-hmm. in West Wicklow there, not too far from Athai. But they were... Producing, or I could say, bottling milk under 60 different brands. Mm-hmm. Right. Same milk. Same milk. Whether yeah. it was supermarket brands or whether it was the, the, the leading brands like Golden Vale Milk, and that that was included in it as well. They had all those brands, you know. Mm-hmm. And the milk was coming maybe from here up to West Wicklow and back down again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, there's a lot of food miles going into that. You there know? is, yeah. 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 And yeah. whereas the, if there, was, there should be a small little bottling plant here, you know. And there is moves around the country to do that. I was talking to one of my colleagues during the week and they're setting up a small pasteurization plant on the farm with the view to having a vending machine. Yes, yes, yes. So you bring along your own little bottle or your own little jar or something and you get your litre, a couple of litres of the milk and you flash your credit card right. to it and things like that, you know. And that would bring it very local. It is. It would, yes, yeah. it would. And I know a man locally was thinking of that idea a few years ago, you know, so yeah. if, if it's it's beginning yeah. to... And I saw Dara McCullough, Dara McCullough writing about it in our own paper in the Farming Independent, yeah. 
that vending machines may be uh, a way. But and 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 also aside from the vending machine, there are people. You know, and I know there's somebody over on the road between uh, beyond Bodike with uh, fresh eggs. Yes, on, yeah. the, on yes. the side of the road. Yeah. You know. And 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 that is all local projects again. So becoming local, I suppose, is going to be one of the one of the ways around the the, the well, what seems to be a looming crisis at the moment. Yeah, it might cost a little bit more to buy locally, but mm. yes, you're supporting a lot of people. Yeah, you know? um, yeah, I think from that as well. Like just even being mindful of that, so many farmers in Ireland and internationally are being undercut because, like that, supermarkets are competing with each other. So how can you offer the cheapest? food and like that people are going this is great because again cost like with inflation everything is going up so if you can get stuff cheaper then great but the problem is the knock-on effect then so even within the vegetable growing industry here in Ireland so many farmers are actually getting out of it because mm. it's not worth their while the cost of the raw like the inputs is not beneficial when you consider the actual cost that they're getting for the outputs. Mm-hmm. And they all have an issue in North Dublin, which produces most of the, the, the vegetables in the country. Mm. Uh, they have security issues as well now, you know, because they're, they're, they're bordering on um, large housing estates. And more and more um, farmers in North Dublin are actually getting out of vegetable production. And the, the, the inputs, etc., and the difficulty of getting labour. Mm. And also, the land is so valuable yeah. that it's hard to turn down yeah. what they're being offered for it, yeah. you know. Well, that's it. And I, I think the other thing as well is that when people are looking at the cost of things is how much is it actually costing the farmer to mm-hmm. produce the food? Yeah. We've got increase in the price of oil, you know, or the oil itself, but also for the fuel, the cost of machinery, even the difficulty in getting machinery. As you mentioned already, Jim, shortage of labour. Mm-hmm. But for the fact, and like we've spoken about this before, you know, with my own um, research into food security, is the fact that there is an ageing farming population with not necessarily the generations to follow. Mm -hmm. And even from talking to farmers as well, there is a concern about that. Some of them are going, I wouldn't recommend my children to get into farming because it's too difficult. It's a seven day a week job. The money, like, yes, there are grants and there are different schemes to try and support farmers, but the volume of work that's required, you don't necessarily have the labour to be able to support that work getting done. And yet we all have to eat. How do we actually survive without food? How can we actually then improve the market in Ireland so like that supporting local actually even growing your own veg but really honouring and respecting the work that the farmers are doing to bring us food every day mm-hmm. um, can I just ask, I'm going to actually invite Martin McMahon here to, to say a few words himself I suppose uh, Jennifer you touched on a few very important points there and you touched on that there's no uh, future for no young youth coming into keep agriculture and I suppose in the recent few days we have seen how how much uh, the European farmers have actually been agitated from the fact that the cost of producing their food has increased so much this year that they've all taken onto the streets you've seen the the farmers in Holland Germany all those countries mm. are really coming and they're protesting now because Europe I think have lost the run of themselves and they have forgotten about food production. Tom touched on, he said, there's no food supply is a safeguard. Before years ago, I remember when we had intervention and we all complained about all this food that was being stored in intervention and how are we going to get rid of it and how are we going to sell it and it was going to bring down the price of our food when it came on the stream. 
Now we have no intervention. We have nothing to turn to. We see that the, the food, mar the food uh, basket of the world is being turned upside down every day. It's so sad to see actually what's going on. And I suppose the, the knock-on effects are not going to be felt until probably September or <coughs> October until we face into the winter when we see that uh, a country will produce something like 2.2 billion tons of grain produced, sending it into the EU every month. Mm. Where is that going to come from? Where are we going to turn to? We can see oil has gone up so high this year, it has cost, it's affecting everybody's pocket. And now when the silage and all is over, we can see that the oil is starting to come back. We begin to question, is it supply and demand mm -hmm. that's exactly, and is it going to increase when the, when the demand comes again as we face into the, the winter, winter when yeah. people start using oil and that, you just wonder. But at the same time, Russia was producing the bottle of oil. There's definitely going to be shortages going forward. Mm. But our farmers are not being thought about. Everybody is thinking about everything in the world, mm. but they're not thinking about food security and where it is going to come from. And I think we have to turn towards that and turn more towards. And I think it has to be, it has to be a European, right, we need to do it here, mm. but it has to be done at Europe. And Europe has to think that how are they going to keep their farmers producing and how are we going to make it more lucrative for young people to take up farming. I think that's the future, mm. young people coming into the industry. I was asking myself a question coming over the road. I'm, as the says, the older farmer generation. And I was saying to myself, would I change what I have done over the years? I said, no. I met a young girl in a tractor going off top and coming through Tom Graney. And I said, look at the grand day she's going to have out on the farm today topping. And I said, look at the grand days I have put down on my farm over the years. It has been a great, it has been a great life, if you like. It's a lovely life out in the farm, but yeah. it's no good if we're not able to make a living off of it. Mm -hmm. And like the tools we have is the land we have. And unless we're able to use them and it's worthwhile using them, food production is going to disappear. Can I just ask as well, because one of the things that I'm learning from speaking to farmers like yourself is, like years ago, it used to be much more of a mixed farm, you know, mm -hmm. so everybody had a pig, everybody had like a handful yes. of cattle, you grew your own veg, you had your cabbage or potatoes, and you kept it that way. And now it's much more kind of mainstream into you really focus on one thing. How has, like, is there a way that farming could return to that? Or is it just not worth people's while I, I definitely think you're, you've touched on another very important subject I think it could return to that yeah. definitely like the department put a lot of extra uh, paperwork involved in closing down small laboratories small um, uh, labor, uh, uh, what do you call it? butchers yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it closed down them which I think was it should never have happened because a lot of people produced, as you said, a pig, or they produced an animal for their own deep freeze. They could go to their local abattoir and have that animal killed, mm. and they knew what they, they knew that they had their own meat coming back. And it's it's a major loss. Mm. It's a major loss. I don't think it should have happened. I think that uh, when you when I remember as a young dad growing up, there was a pig nearly killed in every farm, mm. and it was done locally, and it was done by themselves, and. People, there was never a problem with it, you see. And in most cases, we all remember the pork stick going around. You'd have, you'd kill a pig today and the pork stick, you'd give the pork stick to your neighbours and they would come back then again when they killed the pig. So it was a lovely, it was a lovely gesture among among 
local farmers. Yeah. And I think it could. I don't. I don't think there should be a problem. Yeah. I think that we yeah. should maybe return to some of those things. Jennifer, I suppose I'm of an age. Actually, I'm two days older than this this guy here. <laughs> but, um, when I was young, I remember my mother, you know, selling eggs, and with the money she got for the eggs, she could buy the groceries for the week. Yeah. There was, you know, the farm homestead was self-sufficient in every other way. You know, mm. there was seasonal vegetables. You weren't looking for strawberries in the middle of December or, mm. or yep. whatever. Mm. You know, yeah. that was the time for the the turnips, I suppose, and all that. You know, yeah. and then yeah. the carrots yeah. had their season, and the parsnips had their season, mm. and the, you know, yeah. the mm. lettuce and all that. You know, so. for sure. I even sorry, Jim, just to jump in there. I grew up in Dublin, but yeah. yet my father always had. Like we we grew, you know, our salad leaves, our mm. cabbage, yes. you know, yeah. we actually were self-sufficient to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, and then obviously he got busier, it got easier to buy things in a supermarket. So why not? Um, I myself, am, I can't say successfully, but definitely trying to grow uh, my own food. But I think one of the other things that I've learned from my time in Seed Savers as well is that most, most if not all food, whether for human or animal consumption, comes from seed. And yet there's no focus given on to seed safety, seed sovereignty um, and seed security. So we actually import over 95% of the seed to grow vegetables. Mm. And then we also, I think it's over 60% for grass seed is actually imported as well. Now, I could be wrong on that, on that percentage, but there needs to be more as well, not only in terms of how we can feed ourselves, how we can support locally, but consider the very origins mm -hmm. of all of our food so that we can actually return to the traditional practice of seed saving. Um, and I will plug seed savers who are doing seed saving courses. But <laughs> I think the thing as well is how do we actually connect more people to the full food cycle, including seed, but also as you and I spoke before, Jim, in April, was that a lot of people just or a lot of kids think that food comes from the shop. You know, how do they understand better where food actually comes from and how it actually is important for their own nutritional health, that the closer it is, the better quality and better nutrients that are in the food than what we're actually getting from far away. Mm. Yeah, we were, I was out during the week at Seed Savers for the third installment of the program we started there recently called Exploring Seed Savers. Um, they're absolutely marvellous. Mm. Now, we had, we had a chat with them. Um, Tommy and Anita Hayes and talked about the whole genesis of Irish, the Irish Seed Savers Association and hopefully that will be coming out next week Brilliant. but I mean the work that they do uh, in terms of seed saving and with apple trees and cuttings and all that kind of thing mm. is absolute and it's just down what you're talking about there. Yeah. Can I ask one question as just on behalf of the listeners Martin, intervention, you must I, I remember hearing about intervention before, it's something I hadn't heard about for a while, what, what exactly was intervention, intervention and how does it work? Intervention was where um, food was, was stored and the farmer got a price relative to, to the price that he was, was on the market at the time and in order to keep that price stable they introduced intervention so the, all this food went into what was known as cold storage and intervention and it was stored until the supply reduced and when the supply of food came down the intervention meat or milk or cheese or whatever product was in the thing was introduced back into the into the marketplace again, so that you had a, you had a constant supply. In other words, along with keeping the farmer getting a, a, a stable price, it also made sure that food security was there. Now farmers won't ever want to see intervention because they knew that it always kept the price sort of stable, and when you don't have intervention, that allows the price to go up. But at the same time, if you had intervention at, 
when it, like the war in the Ukraine takes place, you definitely had something to turn back to. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose it, it's the go- the government or the EU Commission yeah. or whoever. It's kind of a choice between um, the price staying stable. Yes. Even if it isn't too high. Yes. Uh, and food safety and food security. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose we're at a very crucial point now because we're still we're only in July. And a lot of changes can take place, we'll say, for example, I think the government are overlooking the farmer at the moment. I wanted, I wanted the government to subsidise fertiliser, especially in the springtime of the year, because it, rose so, it got so dear. For example, Ken was too thin the previous year. It was gone up to over a thousand euros there in this spring. So that's a huge, a huge increase that can't really be carried by the, by the farmer community. So that's why I wanted to, and in some countries they did actually introduce a subsidy. Now they have introduced a subsidy of a thousand euros to a farmer, but a thousand euros to a grain man is like pittance because some of those men have spent over a hundred thousand and maybe a couple of hundred thousand on fertilizer to produce grain. And I have seen that grain has actually increased this year in Ireland. So they have actually sown more and have invested more and they're great people to, to do that at a time when it's so expensive to do it. But I think from a further point of view, the price and the price of fertilizer has come back a small bit, but it's only a small bit. I think that they need to do more to make sure that we have a proper further supply and people can put out fertilizer at this stage, bring in another crop of silage in and produce more. So I think it's crucial that we we plan for the future and I think planning like that is going to be vital going forward. Okay. I, I think that there's um, a number of things. One is the whole model in which, say, food is... Uh, maintained cheap. There is no such thing as cheap food mm. because food is essential. <coughs> but the model is that you supply people with the basics so that they have surplus income to spend on other things like uh, um, you know, phones, like motor cars, like luxury items. So that there's an artificial, for the model of the economy we have, there's an artificial suppression of the price of food in order that people will have the surplus income to buy all this other stuff. Mm. But so if you look at the third world, any of the third world countries, and you might have these figures, um, Jennifer, I don't have them off the top of my head, but the amount of, of, of money they spend on food is quite, is, uh, of percentage of their income is something like up to 60, 70 percent. It's much right. higher. It's yeah, because I know even when I was living in Papua New Guinea and everybody from there like most Papua New Guineans went to the market but they went every second day because there wouldn't necessarily have been like refrigeration systems it's a very hot country Um, so it really depended on people would go buy local get what they needed for their dinner for their breakfast whatever that day and the next day and then that was it but there was much more of a I don't know I don't even know if the the word is right but in terms of much more of a respect and a value of food is because you're living in countries where sometimes people are living so remotely that they don't necessarily have access to food unless Mm. they're growing it themselves. And so there's a lot more invested in food, whether it's having their own gardens, gardening um, and and like gardening over there would be much more like an allotment. But there's so much more now being, I, I suppose, interfering in that because there's a lot of food now being imported and there's more of a focus on, well, if you're growing and you're selling your food at the market, you'll spend your money on the cheap pot noodles because you 
can feed your kids that and then still benefit from the money you're making from your own produce. So there's still a malnourishment issue. But I think definitely anywhere that I've been, definitely there's much more of a focus and a value of food and probably a higher spend. Yeah, so, it, 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 and if, so if we were, if you were to say the kind of high wages we have in this country in the West, if we were to say actually you should be spending sixty percent of that on food, mm. if right was right, mm. if we were to take say a model across the world, yeah. so therefore there is constant artificial, there is a suppression of, of food of, of the food mm. uh, of food prices in the West in order to free up more money for yeah, the economy. Yeah, and that's yeah. a constant problem. And the other thing about the EU is the EU was founded for two reasons. So that Europe would never be at war again and Europe would never be hungry again. Yeah. Those were the two founding principles, really. Yeah. And so that's why the common agricultural policy is a key uh, part and takes up the most of the budget yeah. of the EU. It's to ensure that Europe is never hungry. You know, so strategies such as the um, the intervention and that, that sort of thing uh, are vital. So the, the the cap has constantly the common agricultural policy has constantly been reformed. It now has to be reformed in the context of climate change, but also in the context of war. Yeah. So it has to be a flexible kind of um, uh, implement. But there's another thing I think that we need to look at as well in terms of consumerism and its effect on on say farming. It is also kind of. A, made farmers very much isolated from one another. So therefore, there, wasn't, there isn't any more the great sharing of machinery, of mm. equipment that there was there before because that's no good for people producing machinery. Yeah. They want you to have your own. But Everybody also, who, have has, own. who has the insurance for the machinery and who's responsible yeah. for the maintenance of it? You know? But also, just, just one thing, Martin, I just noticed, just a question I've wanted to ask, um, although I have a brother farming at home and I should have, been, I should have asked him. The size of the tractors are absolutely enormous. Is it necessary to have that size? I mean, the tires would be someplace nearly as wide as this room. You know, has, has, has the marketing of Massive Ferguson, New Holland, and all these people actually seduced the farming community uh, into actually investing in these enormous machines that really they may not necessarily need? And that's just one example. Well, I suppose... Uh a lot of contractors use the the bigger yeah, type yeah, of machinery yeah, yeah. and I suppose in some cases farmers have invested in bigger tractors and bigger equipment and I suppose really it's down to getting the job done faster mm-hmm. and uh, silage for example used to go on for months That's years right, ago yeah. when I remember now it's about two weeks and all silage is done because yeah. of the huge amount of machinery and I suppose it's a good thing in one way that grass can be got in faster mm-hmm. and you have better quality and all that, yeah. so I suppose it is necessary in in a lot of the cases, and I suppose we, I suppose every farmer should be looking at it as well that if you have a smaller tractor, you can do a lot of small jobs around the farm yard with the smaller tractor yeah, yes. and spare a lot of diesel and yeah. have the bigger tractor for doing the heavier work. So yeah. I, know, I, know. I suppose from the point of view that machinery got bigger, work has been done faster, and that mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a, an advantage. But going back to the point about in some of the countries, some of the poorer countries. The f- nearly all their income is taken towards mm. pr- uh, paying for food yeah. and in some of those cases it's still not able to actually they're still not able to have enough yeah, money exactly. to, yeah. to buy food and yeah. it's so sad to see that in some of those countries and I suppose uh, uh, you know we're going to be looking at the future that and I have said this for a good many years the price of food has to increase mm. because when the price of oil the price of fertiliser and all the inputs go up price of food has, has to, to go, go up, up. Yeah. and uh, again 
we were people were enjoying a type of living that was really where people had two and three holidays a year mm. and mm. all because food was cheaper mm. and i think yes, that that's, yeah. that food yeah. definitely yeah. if we want to have food produced it's going to have to get dear and to, to entice people to come back into that industry the yeah. only way that they're going to do it is if there's going to be a living and if there isn't a living for people I'm thinking you, you, you won't have farmers producing food. And the other thing that has happened as well is the size of farms. Farms mm. are getting very big. Mm. I remember when you had a lot of small small producers around East Clare and they were all producing maybe milk or whatever they were at or suckling or whatever they were at and they were all able to make a living and rare families. Mm. Now farms are getting bigger. It's In some of the cases, there's five farms gone into one. Mm. And they're still actually struggling to make a living yeah. and still struggling to actually uh, put their families yeah. to school and that. Mm. Uh, I remember when I came here first in 1978, you know, any dairy farm, the average dairy farm size around here at that time was 30 cows. Mm. Well, that person making 30 cows, and I'll say him, the farmer, because that's what it was uh, in most cases, his wife didn't have to go to work. He could uh, keep everyone fed and happy on the, you know, mm. sale of... The milk of 30 cows. What would that be today, Martin? 100 plus? Oh, sure, tis, tis gone to that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yes. the wife is still it, working. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think, yeah. I think to be fair, cases. I think it's... it's Being the only woman in the room. <laughs> 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 I think in terms of the fact of even looking at how farms were managed was, you know, the volume of work that the woman will be doing at the home, but also in terms of looking at the administrative side. And now even talking about the pressures on farmers with regard to governance, with regard to insurance, with regard to administration, how much more there is that it's nearly a full time administrative role per farmer um, to actually be able to stay on top of all the requirements. And even in terms of from an EU level is how do we actually and going back to the other point about the aging farming population is we as a country are tied in to European agreements for export. But we don't necessarily have the farming population or generation to keep up with those agreements in the years to come. So how do we actually create a system like that to entice people to either stay in farming or to move into farming? Do we even have the land available because there's so much land being developed with regard to housing, uh, which is needed because we have a growing population? But what, uh, what I'm curious about is the longer term plans to ensure that, A, we can meet the export agreements. How can we... What are the agreements we have with regard to the food that we import? Mm. Why are we importing? Like, I think Spain is our biggest grower of carrots yeah. to feed the Irish population. Why can't we grow that here? But yes, they have warmer, drier, drier climates, so therefore can grow, can get a better harvest. But in February 2017, there was an issue with the harvest in Spain because of weather. And therefore, it meant that there was huge volumes of vegetables missing from supermarkets. So again, there's, there's so many pressures now on farmers and just going back to things like the governance the insurance and I think Martin you and I spoke as well about even in terms of insurance for places like Marts correct you know correct. and that leads us on into the kind of farm safety as well can you just yeah. talk to us a little bit about that yeah I suppose uh, you know in, especially in the smaller Marts where if a, if an accident happens in the Mart mm. it puts uh, the price of the insurance 
really goes way too high altogether. And in some of the cases, it has been the cause of closing some of the smaller mats mm. because of the cost of insurance. So I suppose that is a, a major issue. If, if a mat closes in an area, it puts extra pressure on the farmers in that area where they have to travel further with their mm. cattle for sale and that. So insurance is a big problem and it's, in, it's a problem for all farmers because mm. it's a, another rise in cost is, that's uh, creeping up. But, but it's, a, it's a problem we've created for ourselves. Yeah. You know, it isn't a sort of a natural disaster or anything. No. Uh, I mean, our, you, know, you could argue that, uh, you know, our attitude towards compensation and in the courts mm. have created this, that, that uh, the expectation is that yeah. very large payouts and, yeah, and that's going to be reflected in the insurance. Correct. Mm. And have, right. have you seen change, though, because obviously over the last couple of years there needs to be more of a move to online? So in terms of what would have happened in the mart is now happening where there's sales happening online. Are you seeing any kind of oh, traction gotcha. on that? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge change in the mat from that point of view. There's an awful lot of cattle. In, in a lot of the cases, the farmer doesn't even have to go to the mat. If, once he loads up his cattle and sends them off to the mat and they go into the mat and he can actually watch his cattle being sold online. Oh, and yeah and uh, a lot of the buyers are buying online. An awful lot of the cattle that's been sold on the map now are bought online, and the cattle are pinned by the map staff, and they're left there until the lorry comes to collect, and the, the men that bought them actually may, may never go to the map. I hope they have better the success than me buying online. I've bought clothes <laughs> online, and God knows what's turned up. <laughs> Don't start that. <laughs> at least you can, you can send them back, Jennifer. <laughs> 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 yeah, the 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 um, the, the I, I I went to have my own gate one day. A neighbour of mine was, was parked there in a van, and I went up to him and I said, "Oh, sorry, I said you're 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 on the phone. I'm not." He said, "No, I have a bunch of cattle inside Nenos. So I'm just seeing how they're getting on." <laughs> <laughs> and he was sitting yeah. in the van waiting to pick up the kids coming from school. Yeah, you know? yes, yes. So um, so it's been just to go back. I think to the food, um, to, to 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 growing food again. I was listening to a debate or a or a. A discussion on the radio um, a few about a week ago, and there was a man from the IFA. He had an English accent, and um, he's he's one of their. Um, I think he's one of their chairmen of their. their, of their he's a tillage chairman. I think I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Now. But he was talking about uh, insecticides, pesticides, and, uh, and 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 fertilizer, and he mentioned that one of the reasons why um, you know it is so necessary is that. He was speaking, I don't know, was it, was it the kind of barley that they were growing? Uh, but it wasn't really suitable for the Irish climate. So therefore, it had to be supported by um, insecticide and pesticide. So then why is it grown here if it isn't suitable? Yeah. Can we, back yeah. to seed savers again. Our yeah. old varieties should have a place here. You know? yeah. But they do. And actually, just to jump in, there, there are trials that are happening with regard to grains. And I know that there is a few growers I've spoken to that definitely want to do more research in terms of growing grain for human consumption and it not just be either for craft beer industry or, you know, bread or even for feed. But it's actually... Like the department I know we were dealing with in seed series with the crop policy unit and they were involved with the trials of crops as well and specifically on grains. So I think sometimes why do we grow something if we actually need to bring in the likes of insecticide and herbicides and all is because there's a demand. And again, how has that demand been developed? 
is it more cost effective to actually import something? Is it more cost effective to grow it? And then what are the impacts if we do grow it here? So again, I think there's a lot of work and a lot of support really for research helps identify and answer those questions. But it's to make that kind of research more readily available to farmers to understand what's working, what's not working, and it isn't that it's just industry-led. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. But I suppose uh, farmers depended on the like of Chagas and mm. all the different research that yeah. has been yeah. done over the years, and a lot of grains have been tested and trialled and did a lot, and I w- w- would say that uh, out of that research, I suppose the the amount of production increased because of the type of grains and the type of grass we used and the yeah. type of... Uh, clovers that were added to grass and going with the type of uh, barley and wheat that you got you got more bitter yields and mm, that mm. but i suppose some of the the monsanto and those people have a lot to answer for because yeah. they have uh, the, the grains have been designed that you have to use their sprays and you yeah, have yeah, to use yeah. that and if the farmer that he's been trying to been traditional using his traditional grain i saw even in america where if the lorry passed and one pe- a small portion of the grain blew off and into his field, he could no longer use his, his own organic... Yeah, patent rights. Yeah. yeah. He had to actually turn over to using their grains right and away. I think, yeah. I think the thing is, and I know I touched before on this in April, is just with the whole thing about GMO, and everybody's like, oh, GMO is bad. There were certain benefits from it. Um, and I know Correct. being involved with the EPA's GMO advisory committee and seeing reports in terms of like that vaccinations that needed to be used and different things. But GMO crops are, are banned in Europe. But I know UK are looking to allow them back in. But the whole thing about the GMO, my understanding was, especially with wheat, was created with uh, Walter Borlock, was a man that actually had tried to look at developing a dwarf wheat because the wheat itself is too tall and therefore it fell over Correct. and the crop itself is no longer viable. So in terms of trying to address famine and poverty was to create a dwarf wheat so that actually you could get a bigger yield and feed more people. And that's great because that does come from like science looking at humanity and how to actually help. But then it's now kind of science looking at humanity to make a profit. And it's that element of how do we actually, where is the, I suppose, the ethics yeah. versus the commercial mm-hmm. profitability of it. Jennifer, you're right on that. That was a huge achievement yeah. because the, the grain was, was grown too high yeah. and it was top run over. It was yeah. a huge yeah. achievement and it meant there was huge tonnage extra of the wheat yeah. uh, being harvested rather than going. So there is benefits to to the science that has mm. been put behind. I know that we were discussing it in Port B one day and uh, everyone was saying, that why didn't we not use, we'll say, only all... Um, organic grain rather than using the GMO grain yeah. and we came to the conclusion that if we went down the road at that here we wouldn't be able to stay in production yeah. because it would get so dear the cost of, of doing it mm-hmm. so we said well sure you have to go by the science if the science tell you mm-hmm. that it's okay so it is good in some instances yeah. and that's one of the instances has been very good and I think uh, this discussion is very much an indication of how we need to have a farming show on Scarif Bay Community Radio <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> There's just one thing I want to say for I think is it thirty percent of all food is waste is thrown out in um I don't, the board, yeah. Yeah, I don't the know the exact yeah. figure, the but there's huge the amount of restaurants, everything yeah. else. Yeah, thirty yeah, percent. Right. Yeah. And if it was dear, yeah. it wouldn't be thrown out. Correct. And you've got the likes you of know. organizations like Food Cloud who are actually working with charities yes. and with restaurants to try and actually stop that food waste. Yeah. 
but it, it all starts from home. It's all the how much food are we buying that's wrapped in plastic that maybe we leave in the fridge too long or that we actually don't plan our meals and you know and I'm and guilty it, it, of it myself and you and know. It goes to the culture yeah. as well because my uh, my niece and one of the things I remember um, spent uh, three months in Tanzania working in work experience. She's a child psychologist but she was out there and she lived with the family and she lived with the, the grandmother who was rearing the kids. There was uh, enough food for the day in the house mm. and that night you went to bed it was the larder was empty till the grandmother went to the there was a, something for the breakfast yeah and there was uh, till the grandmother went to the market the yeah. following day yeah. um and that th- that there was no such thing as going to the fridge for a snack yeah no such thing as going to the cupboard for a snack it wasn't there mm. you had enough food for every day yeah now that's maybe that's extreme that'd be extreme Don't, no be i think that's fairly like that. standard but i think as like that if you're if you're in very warm countries as well or you know places where electricity isn't readily available and people aren't going to be able to afford electricity and it's getting that way here um, is people aren't going to have refrigerators but it's also not part of the culture but it does also bring kind of a a very nervous question of for those people where they have issues of food like that about harvest the food not being able Mm. to be grown wars you know famines anything like that if they're only reliant on food for a day how like they have no idea if the food is available for the day after yeah. um, and I think the same thing here is if because Ireland and I had mentioned this before is that Ireland is listed as the most food secure country in the world I personally think that's nonsense but I think it's a lot to do with in terms of supply accessibility quality nutrition and it's not necessarily to do with actually if all of the supply chains were cut off to the island do we have enough food to feed ourselves and we would predominantly have enough dairy enough beef mm. But how do like that's not going to feed everybody? And fruit and veg, yeah, will be an fruit issue. and veg will be a huge yeah. issue. Yeah. Fiber will be a huge yeah. issue. Yeah, breakfast cereals. Yeah, are yeah. Type Most of our flour is imported. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think we're, there, there's hardly any. Actually, it's only um, boutique flour production yeah. here. There is yeah, no, there's no meal actually able no, to no, produce. No. And flour. even sorry, just one other point is even to look at all of the industries that did exist in Ireland, like sugar, yeah. even mm. peat, and like that. You know, while I know that there is a much needed focus on climate action and environmental care, but if we stop peat being, you know, produced in Ireland, but yet we're importing it, like mm-hmm. it's kind of okay, so we don't necessarily get the credit taken off us because we're now not producing it here, but it's being produced anywhere, somewhere else. It's now a higher carbon footprint because it's actually been shipped yes, over. Yeah, yes, so it's the same way with yeah, all of our food. Yeah. How do we actually, how are we mindful of our, f- our food footprint? Yes. our seed footprint and then how can we actually develop the plans to go forward from there that's so. one of the things Jennifer that has gone wrong in this country mm. we, we, we were every section of farming depends on the other sector and we allowed the dairy industry when milk quotas le- were abolished we allowed the dairy industry to creep into the like of Kilkenny Wexford who are who are grain producers, grain producers. Yeah. And like the dairyman can't do without the grain for to feed his cows, the beef man can't do without the grain to feed his cattle. He, both of them need straw. We need yeah. straw for our calves. And now we have less less straw. Yeah. We have less grain be produced, and we have more milk. We're you're upsetting the balance of farming hmm. when you change when you change the sector. So there's parts of the country who are suitable for grain 
and there's parts who suitable for suckling, the west yeah. of all, I'm talking of all of the west of Ireland, and there's cork and places like that that are produced, suitable for producing milk. But if you allow that to change, mm. you allow the balance, and you lose out, yeah. and everybody actually loses mm-hmm. because of it. I'd love to continue on this conversation. I think yeah. it's wonderful, but I think we will get into trouble with Jim Collins. Um, so Just before we go, Jim, <laughs> there's one important point, I think, and you touched on it. You said about CAP, when CAP was set up, it was set up to make sure there was a, a food supply within yeah. Europe. I think they need to, Europe needs to go back and look at CAP. And we know now that CAP is reducing. And if cap is reducing, that means farmers, it's not going to be lucrative to go back into it. They need to go back and look at it again. And I think that message needs to go out from here. If there's politicians or whoever is listening to it, to have that power to... to be on Twitter soon. Well, (laughs) get get going, go go back again and look at cap. Could I have just a little word? We're talking about a farming programme that we'd hope to put out on, let's say, a reasonably regular basis every couple of months or something like that. Could we put out an appeal, anyone that's listening to us that is interested in any aspects of farming, whether even from a historical point of view or present day or futuristic, that we'd love to hear from them, you Mm. know, and interview them. That's we have loads of ideas. But we have loads of ideas. That yeah. was actually the last question I was saying to Jim we need to ask. So really the idea was, with regard to having a farming show, is having like loving to talk to people, maybe farmers of an older generation, yes. actually yes. to learn from their experience, how has farming changed over the years, having a focus as well on food security, having a focus on farm safety, because it isn't just a one-week issue where people need to be reminded of what needs to happen it's actually learning about how farm safety has impacted farmers and what can be done um so as i think our listeners will tell myself tom and martin are not short of words so we feel it probably would be better to hear from other people (laughs) as well well. (laughs) so i think if anybody wants to get in touch you can through scarif bay community radio so you can email jim collins Info at scarifbayradio.com. It's on our website, info at scarifbayradio.com. And our website? Our website is scarifbayradio.com. And also, I'm going to plug my own food research that I've been doing, um, looking at food security in Ireland. I'm looking at it from a farmer and grower perspective. I am on Twitter, which is at Bia Amok Anshu. And... Um, you can connect in with me. I've had the pleasure of talking to farmers from all over um, Ireland, which has been really fascinating. And it's a master's, so there's only so much to be done. I think definitely there's enough there for several PhDs. Um, but I think really what we want to do is we recognise that both Martin and Tom and Paul Bugler, who's involved as well, have a wealth of experience, a wealth of knowledge of farming in East Clare. How can we capitalise that and actually learn from even more farmers around East Clare? And who knows, we could go global. Um, so, Tom, is there anything else then that you'd like to add on that? Well, so just to, if anyone wants to talk to us about any aspect of it, and the one thing that I've been thinking of re- in, in the immediate term is take the creamery in Scarif, yeah. the history of that. And I'd, I'm arranging to talk to uh, at least one person in the coming week who worked there maybe for 40 years. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get the start of the creamery. And uh, Jim, you would know that. Your mother came to Scarif. She did. My mother uh, came to Scarif. Uh, she was a buttermaker. Yeah. Uh, came from Cork and came to work in uh, 
the dairy disposal um, company, company in, yeah. in Scarif. Yeah. 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 And, that, and the rest is history. Yes. yes. <laughs> and there's a lot of things like that. There's a few people that have worked in that. I think it's vitally important just to record what they have to say and record their memories, you know, and to have it there for future generations. It's okay. a very broad field, really, isn't it? And it is, pun intended. Um, yes. So thank you, Martin. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jim. Thank, thank you, Jim. You, Jim. Thank, 